Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about becoming cliterate. So before I get into it, I want to make very clear that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any medical problems, please visit your healthcare provider. And I'm definitely not giving any type of religious advice. If you are having any issues with your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. And this is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. Now, I am super, super excited to have on with me today, uh, author and speaker extraordinaire and professor, I should say, Dr. Lori Mintz from the University of Florida. And so, uh, Dr. Mintz, I am going to let you introduce yourself and then we'll get started. Okay. Well, I'm not uh, the real type of doctor like you. I must, I'll start with that. I am a, <laughs> I'm the PhD type. I am a licensed psychologist and a certified sex therapist. I'm also an emeritus professor at the University of Florida, which all that means is I taught there for many years. I retired and they gave me this status, but my class that I love to teach the psychology of human sexuality and that I'm thankful that the students love so much is so popular that in retirement, I still teach that class. Um, I'm also do a lot of trainings and workshops nationally and internationally um, for lay and professional audiences on treating orgasm issues, low desire, women's sexuality. And I'm the author of two books, both aimed at empowering women sexually and both with empirical studies showing that Women Who Read Them Enhance Their Sexual Functioning, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and the one that was just referenced, Becoming Clitorate. And I'm just so thrilled to be here with you today. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for your time. I know we had 
a little bit of a hard time scheduling this, but I'm very grateful that you are on today and I'd love to delve more into it. So I know that, um, by the way, I love the title, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like a lot of women can a relate to that. A lot of women relate to that title because it's so common, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that you've done, well, so definitely your TEDx talk, which I was uh, very excited to listen to and um, just absolutely loved. So tell me, was, uh, was that your that was the TEDx talk at the University of Florida. Is that correct? Yes, it was. It was based on becoming cliterate. Yes. Yeah, and that was amazing. So you, in there, you talk about the orgasm gap. And so for the listeners and for the viewers out there that may not know what that is, if you could just enlighten us. A Absolutely. Bit. So the orgasm gap is the consistent finding in the research literature that when cisgender men, so people born with a penis who still identify as a man, get it on with cisgender women, people born with a vagina who identify as a woman, the men are having way more orgasms than the women are. And just to illustrate with some really striking statistics, um, the first study to identify this set found that 39% of women versus 91% of men said they had wow. an orgasm at their last encounter. Like, whoa, exactly. What a gap. Yeah. And that study didn't ask like what type of sex was it in the context of a hookup or friends with benefits or a relationship. But subsequent research has found that the gap is biggest in hookup sex. In a study I did, 77% of men versus 10% of women. Yeah, huge. It gets smaller in subsequent hookups, friends with benefits. It gets smallest in relationship sex, but it never closes altogether. There was mm -hmm. one study that found in their last instance of relationship sex, it was 85% of men versus 65% of women orgasm. Wow. So, wow, yeah. Closer, but not not good enough, right? No, not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and I think um, what you talk about is, you know, really interesting because when we think about like hookup sex, you know, we think about really no emotional connection, right? We just right. think like perhaps it's like a one night stand or something like that. And I mean, that makes sense because, you know, usually both partners are hoping to get something out of it, but definitely it's much easier for a man to orgasm than it is for a woman to orgasm. And I think you also mentioned, which I think is so true, is that the lack of education, right? The lack of sex education, the lack of understanding of a female, of the female anatomy, which is so prevalent, um, I think really contributes to this. Yeah, absolutely. Because in, you know, all those movies, whether it's mainstream movies or porn, that's where people are getting their ideas about sex in the absence of good sex ed. And absolutely. they are very, they're entertaining maybe, but they're not realistic because they show women having fast and fabulous orgasms from penetration alone with, with little lead up. And we know, right, that that's not, that's going to cause pain. It's not going to cause pleasure. And I've had so many women say they thought some of their vaginas were broken because they didn't orgasm that way. Yeah. And that's really the problem is hookup sex, heterosexual sex, even in the context of a relationship, 
it all revolves around what the penetration, the main act, right? That we And that is not how most women orgasm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's just so fundamental for women and also men to understand the anatomy and to know that for women, the clitoris is so important. And I think also you mentioned that in your book, right? Um, becoming clitoris and just how women will orgasm if there is, you know, um, a lot of touching and manipulation of the clitoris and things like that. And understanding that the sole purpose of the clitoris is pleasure. And I think that once people realize that, then, you know, they'll seek that out. But if you don't know your anatomy and you don't know the purpose of the clitoris, then I think there definitely will only lead to more orgasm gap. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, what really is striking to me is that when there is clitoral stimulation, women are just as likely to orgasm than men, as men are. Like when women pleasure themselves, most stimulate their clitoris, only 1.2% do so exclusively by putting something in their vagina. And women are equally as likely as men to orgasm during masturbation. And we also know that when two, two women get it on, women are more likely to orgasm. And it's 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 because the focus is on clitoral stimulation without there being this main event of penetration often. Right. And I think you mentioned it um, on one of your talks that I was listening to. Actually, you said that both um, in, in masturbation, I think the research that you so, saw or cited was that both genders were able to orgasm within four minutes. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that is correct. That is old research from Kinsey, but I don't have any reason to believe it's changed. That right. the, same, the same amount of time when women are alone and when men are alone. And, but when women are, you know, with men, they're, they don't get the stimulation they need. And it's what you mentioned about the relationship, right? Even often women are up in their heads, right? Yes. Am I doing this okay? Do mm -hmm. I look okay? Do I smell yes. okay? Is yeah. he happy? And yeah. you cannot have an orgasm when you're <laughs> self-monitoring in your head, right? So. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd love to get into more of the psychology of it, because I think that definitely one aspect, right, a huge aspect is not understanding the anatomy, not knowing the anatomy. But I think the other part of it is exactly what you are starting to lead up to now is the psychology of it and really being mindful and present. And I'm sure you're aware of the study um, that Rosemary Basson did in 2013 when she talked about how when women practiced, they, I guess, had come and there was um, research that was being done on decreased libido and arousal. And they did 90 minute group sessions for women and they practiced mindfulness along with cognitive behavioral therapy and education. And they realized that when women practiced mindfulness in their relationship and when they were being intimate, that there was increased lubrication, increased desire, increase arousal, and increase sexual satisfaction when they practice mindfulness during, you know, having a sexual intimacy and penetration and um, just overall sexual satisfaction when they were able to bring along the mindfulness. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I'm often fond of saying that mindfulness is sex's best friend. 
And, and shame is sex's enemy. And shame leads us to think all these thoughts of, is what I'm doing bad? Am I bad? Do I look bad? Mindfulness is, as I'm sure you well know, but I'll just break it down in case listeners need sort of a re-education or a new education. Mindfulness is when you put your mind and your body in the same place. And Mm. it sounds so simple, but we rarely do that. Like, Right. A listener can be listening to this podcast, right? And your mind might have wandered 10 times. I mean, that's what our minds do, right? Even if we're interested in something, like they go ahead, oh, thinking what I'm going to do next, or they go backwards thinking about the past. And we're rarely in the same place. And the metaphor I like to use is a roller coaster. I don't know if you like roller coasters. I love them, but when you get on, your mind's going a mile a minute. What if this thing breaks? What if I get stuck? What if, you know? What if blah blah? And you're all. And but then when you you start going downhill, you stop thinking. You are just feeling. You are present with the feelings. You might be screaming, but you're present. Right. And that's mindfulness, and it's really hard to achieve. But the best way to do it is to practice in your daily life. You don't have to meditate. I mean, I meditate every morning, but you can do it. The next time people are brushing their teeth, really feel the sensations in the mouth, really taste it. And when the mind wanders, as it will, notice it and bring it back to the sensations. And that's what you do during sex. Notice, oh, there she goes again, worrying about you know, how she looks, bring her back to the feelings in the body. And it is really, really so effective. It's, as you said, it's empirically, scientifically supported technique. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love how, you know, you remind people to keep bringing it back. And it's okay if your mind wanders, but it's really important to bring it back into the present moment of where you are right then and there without judgment. And I think that that really helps everyone, especially when you're in a sexual situation, but really in any situation, right? It could be like a board meeting, it could be anything, but really just being present in the moment helps so much and you're able to unload, right? And I think, um, so I took this course through the University of Michigan for sexual counseling and education. It's a year long program. And and we talked a lot about sensate focus and sensate focus focuses on that as well. And I love that modality about how just to focus on the sensations that are happening in your body and the touch and what does it feel like and what does something taste like and just for your own pleasure, right? And just to kind of learn about sensations. And I think that that is so good when it comes to somebody that perhaps is not as experienced in the bedroom or for somebody that's experienced trauma or abuse or something like that to get back into their mind and just to focus on what's going on. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really, and it's hard. It sounds easy, but it's so hard. And sometimes your mind wanders and you're gone five or 10 minutes before you realize, uh Oh, I'm gone. So it's that really the practice is what you said, non-judgment quick. Like I, I had a friend once when I was starting to meditate and I said, to my friend, I'm terrible at this. Like my mind wanders all the time. And my friend said, oh no, that's good. That's the practice. Mm. If you're, the practice is noticing that instead of just going with it. 
And the sooner you notice it, the quicker you can bring it back to the present moment. Yeah, I love that. And I love how, you know, it's definitely a practice and it takes a long time. I'd love to go back to your books. So you wrote uh, Becoming Cliterate and then The Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about both of those books. Yeah. So The Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex was my first book. And to be honest, it was inspired by my own and my friends' experiences. Here I was, a therapist. My friends were mostly therapists, and we were all, most of us were young mothers, really busy, stressed, working, and somebody would break the ice and say, I never feel horny anymore. I have no sex drive. And everyone else would be like, yeah, me too, me too, me too. So I was asking my clients about this. I'd say 80% of them also were experiencing this. And at this point, I wasn't a sex therapist. I wasn't even in the field of sexual health, but I knew how to read research and how to read clinical trials. And I thought to myself, why didn't they teach us this in grad school? And there must be something out there in the scientific literature that we don't even know about as therapists, as women. So I did a deep dive and I, of course, found Yes, in the scientific literature, there was a lot of solutions, but none that the lay public, even therapists, right, were aware of. And I thought, this is like, this is crazy. Like, this needs to be in the public arena. And I love to write. And, you know, I had done a lot of scientific writing. So I, I retrained myself to do popular writing, long story short. And I wrote this book based on just translating the scientific literature in an accessible format. And I called it, the, the treatment in the book, I call five T's and a bit of spice. And the T's are um, thoughts, just what we're talking about, mindfulness, thinking about sex, talk, sexual communication, another empirically supported technique, time, taking time for self-care, time for one's partner, trying to get rid of some of those energy draining activities, touch, how being aware of how you like to be touched, you know, and then um, trysts, which is planned sexual encounters, because we don't, we, many of us stop being spontaneously horny, but turns out you can get, you don't, instead of waiting to be horny to have sex, you can have sex to get horny. And then the spice is like, you know, blindfolds, kink, vibrators, lubricants, things that make sex more exciting. And so, and then after I published that book, the scientist in me panicked. And I was like, oh, what if I put something out there in the world that isn't helpful? So I commissioned some students to do a randomized clinical trials on my book. And I was so delighted to find out, yes, women who read it enhance their sexual functioning, their desire, their arousal. So that was it. I was then fully immersed in the world of sexual health, took a lot more trainings, got certified as a sex therapist. And then I started teaching this class um, at the University of Florida, the Psychology of Human Sexuality. And that's when the orgasm gap became a passion of mine because it was so sad to me. I found that these young women in my class they thought they were broken. They thought something was wrong with them. They weren't orgasming. And when I told them about the clitoris, they were shocked. 
I mean, really shocked. And I thought to myself, wow, like a whole body of knowledge is missing from the from this these women's worlds. And so I started teaching to the orgasm gap to female pleasure. And I would get notes, beautiful, beautiful notes from students. Thanks to this class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to um, this class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought, I'm not keeping this in my classroom. If my students at the University of Florida don't know, then there's thousands of women who don't know. And that's when I wrote Becoming Clitorate. That's amazing. I love it. I love your journey. And I think that, you know, what you do is so important because as you stated, right, a lot of uh, so many women don't know their anatomy. And definitely, I mean, if women don't know their own anatomy, I'm sure that men <laughs> don't know women's anatomy. And I will tell you that even in when I see patients in the clinic, they will ask me, you know, if the baby comes out the same hole as where they pee from. Mm-hmm. Right. So they don't um, they don't know their anatomy. And I think that that really says a lot about us as a society, right? Like we are just failing kids and children and and now adults because nobody knows their anatomy. And not only does it lead to definitely the orgasm gap, but also problems in sexual health, right? When they're not able to describe or even tell you what part of their body is hurting or, you know, where there is pain and not the actual vocabulary for it. They don't know the vocabulary for it, then it's hard for patients to tell you what's going on. And then I think what happens is that not only do we have that educational problem, but we also have doctors not feeling comfortable treating sexual health issues. And so we as physicians are not being trained. We're not getting the training in our, and that was kind of like my TED talk. (laughs) But anyways, but, uh, you know, doctors are not getting trained in medical school, we get maybe an hour or so. And at most, it's just the Masters and Johnson research that was in the 1960s, and really not even anything more than that. And just that, you know, that linear model of a sexual response. And then that's it. That's all we get. And I've done an OBGYN residency four years, no education at all on sexual health, on menopause, nothing. And so where are the physicians? And I'm an OBGYN. So imagine other specialties, you know, like they're not getting any either. So I think that there's just a real systemic problem that we have. Yeah, that is, it's, you know, it's so sad to me, right? And, you know, I I didn't get any training in, you know, becoming a psychologist on this. They still don't do any training. And I've started doing grand rounds at a lot of medical schools on sexual health and not the medical stuff because I'm not trained, but just the conversation, you know, just like simple things you can teach patients like about responsive desire, which is having sex without being horny and letting the touch get you horny, like vibrators and how, why they work and how they're empirically supported and how to talk to patients about it. And these residents are so grateful and many come up to me and say, these 45 minutes were the first time in my entire yes. training. And these are OB, OB yeah. guide residents that they're, I, I don't know. They're, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, and this is, and you all are the first line of defense. I know many of my patients will say the first person I talked to was my gynecologist and not everybody's lucky enough to have a gynecologist like you who knows, you know, so many times they're told, 
mm, it, you know, pain's part of it. Have a glass of wine, relax, you know, it's, you know, and so, the, so your patients are so lucky, but so few patients have access to that kind of care. You know, and I will tell you that, that the, you know, just have a glass of wine. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I heard that in residency, right? So, if they'll, you know, the a medical assistant or somebody would come out and I was in residency and I didn't know anything about sexual health. And so they'd be like, oh, or even during, you know, when a woman is in labor and was so uncomfortable being checked or, you know, they'd be like, oh, you just need to relax. You just need to, I mean, <laughs> you know, patient doesn't relax when you tell them to relax, right? No, not- you cannot relax on cue when you're in pain. <laughs> Right. And you, you know, what's really interesting about that have a glass of wine thing. Um, a lot of research that I've just been reading recently, you know, people are told relax, right? That's why you might not orgasm, but it's yeah. just the opposite. Orgasm, as you well know, is due to blood flow. Yes. And so many times going out for a run and getting the blood flowing is more effective than having a glass of wine. And and I'm not, I don't have anything against wine, but wine, you know, a glass of wine is gonna make you feel a little more relaxed, horny in your head, but it's actually a central nervous system depressant, right? So it's yeah. not gonna help with the blood flow, you know? So, so we're not only like dismissing women's pain and upset, but we're kind of giving them bad advice too, right? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And and you're so right when you talk about the blood flow, right? We really need to increase that blood flow and exercise is a great way to do that, to increase the blood flow to all parts of our body, but especially the pelvic area, the pelvic region, right, is where we need to increase blood flow. And that's what happens when in menopause, when you have decreased estrogen, in the vulvar area, right? Resulting in the changes that happen in the vagina. And so when you put that estrogen back into the vagina, it actually increases the blood flow and increases the sensitization in that area, allowing women to orgasm and also to have sex without pain, which is so important, right? Uh, You know, actually, I just wrote this little saying yesterday when I was thinking about it, and that was that menopause does not mean or doesn't have to mean abstinence. And I think that that's really important and for women to know and understand and that it is a choice. A lot of women I see in my clinic will tell me that, you know, oh, they're just because they're menopause, literally just because they're menopause, they'll be like, oh, you know, and I'll ask them, are you sexually active? They'll be like, no, no, I gave that up. You know, once I became menopausal, I gave that up. Like, I'm like, how does that even make sense? Like, what do you mean you gave it up? You know, but yeah, that's, that's what women think. Yeah. And, and I will tell you that I have so many patients that will say to me, oh, I'm just done with that. Like you're saying, or it hurts. So I stopped and I'll be like, well, are you menopausal? Yeah. Like it hurts for a biological reason. You need to see someone who knows how to prescribe estrogens. Oh no, they'll say that causes cancer. No, 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 no. Go see a, a certified menopausal physician that's not accurate that's old data like they can talk you through that i can't give medical advice right but i can get them to the right doctor and i will share i'm not sure if you've ever heard of this book it's called magnificent sex by peggy Mm -hmm. kleinpads and she did a study of couples who have magnificent sex it was brilliant right because we all all these studies are of people who are struggling she said let me study people who are really 
having a good time. And what she found is for most of them, their best sex started at age 50. Ah, interesting. When, so it really, you know, if you can communicate, if you can get rid of like that goal orientation, if you can get the right medicines um, for, you know, for the genitourinary syndrome so that you aren't having pain. And, and I'll go ahead and self-disclose right here on this podcast to be a role model. I'm 63. I'm postmenopausal. I am on vaginally inserted estrogen. I am on systemic estrogen. I am on progesterone. I also, and I have a great sex life. And I'm 63 and it's only getting better, but that's because I had the right psychological skills, communication, mindfulness, and I had a good doctor like you who put me on the right hormones. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I really appreciate your vulnerability. And by the way, you look fantastic. I mean, not that, you know, people that are in their 60s don't look fantastic, but you look great. Thank you. Thank you. I do a lot uh, of yoga, which, by the way, there was also a randomized clinical trial that yoga enhances sexual functioning. Yes, (laughs) because because of, you know why, right? The blood flow and uh, it helps with blood flow. It's the exercise and it's focusing on the pelvic floor, but also, like you said, the mind body, right? Yes, my yoga does both. It gets our blood flowing and it teaches us to be in our bodies. Yes, and yes. you don't have to be athletic to do it. I am the least athletic person you'd ever meet. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You're, you're so right about yoga. And I think that, you know, being on, and I think that's the, that's the problem, right? That I menopause definitely has a bad PR person. <laughs> like we just, right. I mean, nobody really understands menopause. And again, that has to go, that goes back to our clinical education. It goes back to our residencies that don't talk about menopause. And I'm in that generation of physicians that the WHI study had come out while I was in residency. And as soon as that study came out, you know, they're like, oh, estrogen hormones are bad. And so nobody prescribed estrogens anymore. And so, you know, we, they created this fear, right? The media created this fear about hormones. And it still goes on to today, because I will talk to women about, you know, as they're going through perimenopause, menopause, and I'll ask them if they want to go on hormones, and they'll say, no, no, I don't want any hormones. And, you know, it's going to cause cancer, or they'll say to me, somebody actually just said to me recently, I said, you know, are you on hormones? And she, and she's, young. She's in her fifties. And she said, no. And I said, well, why not? And she said, because, you know, she goes, menopause is a natural, you know, aging process. She goes, why do I need to go on hormones? And I said, yes, it's natural, but you know, the hormones are going to protect you from that cardiovascular disease, from the osteoporosis, from the dementia, from, you know, your collagen, your hair loss, your brain fog. I mean, like so many things that estrogen is going to help you with your vaginal health. I mean, there's, I don't know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. yeah. This, this reminds me of a client I had and I use it like, and, um, he was a man, right? So it wasn't relevant is to this, but it's the same metaphor. He was complaining how his penis wasn't as you know strong anymore. And we had a very good relationship, so I could use humor with him. He'd been a former football star and he was bald and he had a hearing aid. So I said, hmm, does it bother you you're bald? And he looked at me like, I just told you about my penis in your act. And he, <laughs> he just looked at me like I was nuts. And he goes, no. 
And I said, oh, how about your hearing aid? Does it bother you to wear a hearing aid? And then he was getting it. He laughed. He said, no. I said, oh, time to end session. You're the quarterback of the football team. And I talked to him about like, I mean, in the metaphor, right? Like we don't say it's natural to lose our hearing as we age, right? So don't get a hearing aid, you know, or, you know, you know, if you have like uh, diabetes emerge, don't get insulin. It's just part of the aging process or whatever the metaphor. But we do that with women's health. And my own gynecologist said the best thing to me. She said, women used to die before this happened. So we didn't, we, but we are outliving our uteruses. We are outliving. And so we have to supplement it just like we're, we get hearing aids, glasses. You wouldn't not get cataract surgery because it's part of aging. You, right. you get them taken out and so you can see. Right. Absolutely. And that's, I think that that is a great metaphor because I think that people don't understand that this is upkeep, right? We, we want to maintain the things that we have and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And there are lots of women that decide that they don't want to go on hormones and that's okay. But I think that, you know, what people need to understand that hormones are safe and that the predominant majority of women are candidates for hormone therapy. And we're, as physicians, we really are doing them a disservice by not even offering it to them and not even really giving them a choice and really making that decision for them right. and telling them that, you know, menopause just happens and you really don't need it and who goes on hormones and whatever and allowing just what you were talking about, right? Just assuming that, um, you know, pain with sex as we get older is just normal and you just deal with it or you just don't have sex anymore. And that's just the way it is. And and young women are afflicted by this idea that sexual pain is normal too, for different reasons, right? Like, so postmenopausal, menopausal women, it's due to the estrogen. I can't tell you, I mean, and I talk about this in my book, I talk about in my class, how many young women are having sexual pain. I do these surveys in my class, the last class, 57%. It's crazy. And what is because they think they shouldn't need lube. They think like it was the saddest thing to me. They described a hookup and they say, oh, you know, we will give the guy oral sex. I mean, they used more graphic terms than I am, you know, um, and then we have intercourse. And I'm like, of course that's gonna hurt. You are not aroused. You are not lubricated. This is nothing about you. And so I hand out lube packets in my class, talk Ah. about vibrators. I talk about foreplay. And I can't tell you how many women come back and tell me I had painless sex for the first time. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, and I think to what you're saying is that that's ingrained in women, right? To to think that sex is supposed to hurt. We hear that all the time. We hear that, you know, the first time you have sex, it's going to hurt or that, you know, pain with sex is normal and it can happen, and but it, it doesn't have to hurt and it's not supposed to hurt, right? It's supposed right. to be pleasurable. And I think that that's the narrative that we need to tell more people and more women need to understand that it's not supposed to hurt. And if it, it hurts, then, you know, please go and get evaluated and make sure that there's nothing anatomical, infection, whatever, whatever the case may be. And like you said, perhaps it's just that they need more lubrication and that there's nothing wrong with using lubrication, but 
it's the idea that everything is supposed to be spontaneous, right? Everything's supposed right. to just feel good and you're supposed to just orgasm and everything's fine. Right. And, and this idea like that, I mean, talk about it, stop if it hurts, use lube, communicate. Um, I, I have a little rhyme I made up. It, it's um, masturbate, lubricate, vibrate. Communi <laughs> communicate. Sorry. Let, lubric masturbate, lubricate, vibrate, communicate. <laughs> and all those right. things like they really all they really all help you know yeah, it's, it's totally. the it's the it's the physiological and the emotional it, it goes together right absolutely and i think that that's what a lot of times we don't understand and patients don't understand and i think you know i heard um i don't know if you know dr maria uluko I've heard she's the name, but I don't. Yes, yes. She's one of the uh, co-researchers that discovered that the clitoris had more than 10,000 nerve endings. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so she actually, when I first heard her speak, she was the first one that I ever heard say that the brain is the biggest sex organ. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and we know how true that is, right? Not only just physiologically, but also, like you said, to be present and be mindful and to really just be in the moment so that you can, you know, so that increases the desire, increases lubrication, increases arousal, all of those things that you need to have a pleasurable experience, a pleasurable sexual encounter. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, you know, I've, and, and we don't, just like we don't teach women's anatomy, we don't teach people how to communicate sexually. We don't yeah. teach people how to be mindful. Like, we're not giving people, no wonder so many people are struggling. We're not giving them the skills or the information that they need. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why it's, I love what you do. And I'm sure your class is an absolute hit. The psychology of, the psychology of sexual medicine. The psychology of human sexuality. Psychology. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's perfect. I'd love to come down and <laughs> take your course. I'm sure. I it's... would love you to come down and be a guest speaker in my class. <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean, it's just so amazing and it's so important. And I think that the the mind, the psychology of it is so, so important. And that's why I think that I'm really grateful because I also did coaching. And so um, I combine that with my, so when I see patients and patients that may have vaginismus, uh, what's great is that I'm able to treat them and talk to them about their pelvic floor and what's going on, but also I'm able to coach them about their thoughts and then, you know, what are the feelings that they have about those thoughts and then the actions that result because of those feelings and how that the fear right, will cause the auto, the involuntary contraction of those muscles in the pelvic floor resulting in that vaginismus. So it really helps. And I think that that um, what I love is that I also learned a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm wondering, do you do you focus a lot on that when you in your class when you talk about the psychology? I, uh, I do. I do. I do hit it all. Like I talk about um, cognitive behavioral interventions. I talk about mindfulness-based interventions. I talk about um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a different whole, like I kind of incorporate, I incorporate anything that has been shown to work, I talk about, and including cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And that actually also, they say, is um, used for menopause, for hot flashes and night sweats as a non-hormonal method of helping. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. no, it's so funny because we talk about the mind-body connection, right? And even that has always struck me. I, I'm curious what you think of this. Even that has struck me as odd because it's like a connection is something that two separate units have. Like we're connecting right now. You and I are two different people and we're connecting over our interest in sexual health. But when we talk about the mind-body connection, it's like saying these are two separate things. And it's, we are really one. It's more, we shouldn't be talking about connecting. We should be talking about unifying, you know? Yeah. I love that. I think that that's so true and you're right. And I think, you know, I bet you that stems from medicine in medicine, we separate all the body parts, right? So you have a cardiologist, you have a nephrologist, you have as if everything is disconnected as if like one part is not affecting the whole part. And Actually, in Islam, it's funny because in Islam, it says that if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So I think it's, yeah, and it's actually the DO philosophy as well. So, you know, there's MDs and DOs and the DO see the, and I'm a DO. So the DO see the whole body as a whole. It's a holistic, it's a holistic approach. And so I think that that probably is where it stems from, right? The mind-body connection, separating them, where, as you say, um, that it's really important to see that we're all one. We're, we're one person, right? Everything is going to be connected because we're a person and everything is connected. So yeah. I love how you say that. I love that DO philosophy. That's great that, you know, you're right. Like, I mean, if one, it is so true, or, or that, that you said that was a- In Islam. In Islam. In Islam. I, I love yeah. that because yeah. it's so true. You can't just isolate, you know, one, your pain, whether it's psychological or physiological pain. Like if it hurts, it hurts all over. Right. Right. I love that. That that can also be with sexual health, right? If you're having pain and there's so many different things about sexual health, but you know, (laughs) it's more, uh, it's too long of a topic for this podcast, but right. I mean, in sexual health, right. If that, if that part of your body is not working, then your whole body, your whole idea, it leads to depression and anxiety and relationship issues and all this stuff. So really your whole body suffers. your sexual health, if you're not happy with it, or if there's a part of your sexual health that's bothering you. Yeah. And there's such a high correlation between sexual satisfaction and life satisfaction yes. Yes. and sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction 100%. and relationship satisfaction and life satisfaction. And it's, it's all interconnected and it is. being, having a good sex life is part of having a good life. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, they say that one of the most common reasons that people in the United States get a divorce is because of a sexless marriage, right? Yes. So, and that communication drops off and then there's resentment, there's anger. So, so much, I guess, perhaps we'll have to um, turf that to our next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But Well, thank you so much. And Laurie, I'm sure there are people on here listening and watching and wondering like, gosh, how can I get in touch with her? She is amazing. I want to take her course. I want to do follow her on all of her social media platforms. How can they get in touch? With That's her? so sweet. Thank you. This has been so much fun. I felt like I forgot we were on a podcast. I felt like I was having a conversation with a friend who had a mutual interest. So thank you. Um, so you can find me by my website, www.drlaurimintz, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z.com. 
And from there, you can find links to buy my books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. And my handle on Instagram, Facebook, um, and I'm most active on those two, especially Instagram. It's all the same, Dr. Lori Mintz. So it's pretty easy to find me. And, um, you know, feel free to read my books, follow me on social media, and shoot me an email, get in touch. Um, I always answer emails and I'm happy to engage with people. I can't give medical or psychological advice to people who are not my clients or patients, but certainly happy to refer people to the right source. You know, and I have to say this before we get off is that Dr. Mintz, Laurie, is the kindest individual. I remember when I went into you at Ishwish, I was walking by and I'm like, you're Dr. Mintz. <laughs> and she's like, yes, I am. <laughs> it was like, I mean, so humble and so kind and so, so generous with your time. So I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to go and buy both of your books and get reading on those because I know I'm going to learn so much from you. So thank you again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And well, we are done and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical or even psychological advice. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening. This show was produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts and made possible by listeners like you. If you ever thought of doing your own podcast, please visit prettyeasypodcast.com.